You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. sense in going home. Ain't no sense in going home. Jody's got your girl and gone. Jody's got your girl and gone. Your left party, old Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and our show that we always love doing as a matter of fact and uh this is David's pick, but it's also the Georgia Military Hall of Fame show, and uh, we honor them and support them in every way that we can, and we've got uh, Pete Mecca on. He's an Air Force intelligence veteran of Vietnam, and we're going to have a good time talking to him today. He's involved in one of everything, I think, so uh, Pete, welcome to America's Web Radio. Uh, thank you, David. We're having a little technical difficulty with the sound, but we we, we shall survive, sir. Oh yeah, we'll uh, we'll do quite well with it. And uh, I'm uh, I you know I I can only control my end of the stick. Unfortunately, I can't uh, control control both sides of it. But uh, we'll make it through. Okay, I'll keep my ear to the phone. <laughs> All righty, that's a that's a fair deal. And uh, Pete, uh, I guess, but what is your relationship with the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame? Uh, you're an inductee. Uh, I think I was one year, but there are so many guys that are more qualified for that uh, honor than I am. Uh, I know Rick White. I did his story. Um, I did several of. The, Stories for the men who have been honored in such a way. Um, I would be honored too, David, but to tell you the truth, uh, the guys who suffered and bled uh, have a much more interesting story than I do, and I think they should receive the award uh, uh, maybe when I'm gone. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I'm uh, looking at it the same way as uh, when I'm gone. Uh, you know, it'll be uh, maybe more uh, thrilling than uh, being here. I don't know, but uh, or I may be more important gone than than here. So uh, time will tell. Uh, That's right. Anyway, you uh, you served in uh, Vietnam, and uh, we we do have a little something in in uh, uh, the fact that you were an intelligence officer in the Air Force and. Uh, that's what my son is in um, Germany right now. So uh, we have a little bit in common. I was just a common old grunt. But like I tell everybody, and they've renamed us, as a matter of fact, we're now Vietnam veteran eras. And, uh, boy, did they hit that right, E-R-R-O-R. And uh, that's, that's what I am as an era. A lot of people have said that in the past and used to hurt my feelings but it doesn't bother me anymore now but anyway when when did you go into nam well i went into the military in 1966 i already had my pilot's license and uh, i had wanted uh, to fly army choppers and they had a program that you could take your physical uh and uh the paperwork before you sign your paper to be sure you qualified. Well, they found out I had a weak right eye, and they could not put me in uh, a chopper as a pilot. Wow. But the Army said, well, we will put you in a chopper anyway. And I said, as what? <laughs> and they said, a door gunner. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> so I went to the Air Force, joined up, and uh, took my basic at Lackland, ended up in air intelligence uh, training in Denver, Colorado, and uh, flew on the B-52s out of McCoy Air Force Base in Orlando, Florida for a year, and then uh, got my orders for uh, 
Vietnam, actually a top secret site called the Project uh, NKP in the northeast corner of Thailand. And for a year and a half, we interdicted Ho Chi Minh Trail. And from there, I went for a year's duty in Saigon, Vietnam, uh, with a recon outfit. And in the Air Force, I, I was in the Army, so I'm not real familiar with what they call it in the Air Force. But uh, in the, what was your MOS in the Air Force uh, besides intelligence? I know they have, uh, like, uh, even though my, my son... Uh, is an intelligence at one time still an intelligence his uh his duty was to uh uh set up or or tell whoever he told what to put on the on the plane to bomb or what you know he 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 was an ordinance type officer i guess yeah i uh so far as mos i was general intelligence but i uh uh or specialize in target intelligence. Um, we would choose the targets, tell the pilots what to hit. Uh, I had no uh, dealings whatsoever with the, the type bombs they were going to use. We would uh, take the photographs, look at the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail, try to find the what we call POL dumps. That's petroleum, oil, or lubricants. Hmm. Uh, try to get the truck parked parks it, it was challenging and, and uh, although it was war and we lost a lot of good men in laos uh, a lot of pilot friends of mine were lost over there and they are the unsung heroes of the vietnam war but it was it, it, if you're going to fight a war it was what i might call interesting work it was like a cat and mouse game i mean where are they where are the trucks where are the tanks <laughs> Uh, where are the troops hiding? Now, I can tell you one thing. That Ho Chi Minh Trail was difficult to uh, interdict. Uh, we were basically bombing dirt. That's what the trail was made of until the last years of the war when they started paving the darn thing. But, uh, you know, you bomb dirt. You spend a quarter million dollars worth of ordnance uh, bombing a river fort or, or, or a dirt highway. And by the time the jets land back in base, or they when these sky raiders come back to base, uh, the coolies have already gone out there and refilled the hose. <laughs> so, yeah, we were. It was a tough situation. Uh, you know, we were fighting with one hand and sometimes two hands tied behind our backs due to what we would call today political correctness, <laughs> when the enemy absolutely had no political correctness. They were there to. Uh, achieve victory and uh, I might ask you this why what was the real reason that we were in Vietnam do you know the real reason yeah I do uh, the, the real reason um, was that I decided that we weren't trying to win the war and I went the uh, National Guard route and that's why I'm a Vietnam era uh, but you know, we, that was the reason I didn't join, was that nobody could tell me why. And this deal of, well, we're there to stop communism from coming to the United States. Well, you know, it ain't going to come across the Pacific like that, you know. I don't think Vietnam swimmers are that good. And uh, I agree there, but you know, it, it was a... It, why were we there? It was a, there was a reason we were there. Yeah, to make and money we for the, uh, the war. We weren't there for resources. We weren't there to take over a country. We were there we to were make there LBJ richer and uh, Ladybird. Huh? We were there to make LBJ and Ladybird very wealthy. And uh, <laughs> they already were. Well, I'm <laughs> but, from Texas, and I I know all about LBJ. But actually, the power behind was Ladybird, and it was amazing. Okay. Her yeah. ships would get into port in vietnam and somehow they would get the the yard master would get her ships in front of the line every time and unload them so they could get back to sea to bring more cargo and uh she made she made a million well not millions she made a billion dollars over there and uh, it was a political it was a non-win political game and uh, i think some of the 
I think we're still feeling, this is my personal opinion, but we're still feeling the harm of media today that started in Vietnam with Walter Cronkite. And, um, you know, that was probably one of the first wars that was, it wasn't as instant as we have today for television, but, uh, you know, they'd take their film and then put it on a jet and it'd be there by 6 o'clock news, sometimes even unedited. But I, what I was thinking, what you were, as an intelligence officer, you were looking at um, film that U2s or whatever flying over would take, and then you'd get the film, they'd process it, and then you'd get one of your little scopes and put it on the on the film to look at it and and uh, see what you could see. Is that correct? That's 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 it in a nutshell. Uh, there were conferences, there were meetings. We had a one-star general in the building with us. It was a, a good process, but we could hit a target almost immediately if we wanted to versus uh, like in Afghanistan or Iraq. Sometimes it took one or two days to get approval at the start of those wars. Uh, we didn't have to do that. Uh, we were fighting with one hand tied behind our backs, but we were at war, and we could hit when we could uh, as soon as we could. But I want to get back to the real reason we were in Vietnam, and the only reason we were there was to stop the communists from taking over South Vietnam. That is the only reason we were there. And you cannot take uh, American boys who played football and sports all their lives and put them on a football field and say, hey, we're just here to protect our end of the football field uh, we're going to let the other side win, so you know, don't don't worry about defense and offense. Just protect this end of the football field. We're not built that way. Uh, we're built to go out there, win the game, and then go home. We're not. Uh, our DNA does not have what it takes to go outside of the United States and fight a protracted war. Uh, we basically like to. Go to war, kick ass, and get our boys and our women home. And that's, to me, the way you should fight a war. Go for the head of the snake, get it over with, get our people home. Well, we, we obviously, being in the Air Force, you know this better than I, but uh, we obviously had the power to uh, <laughs> blow Hanoi away. And uh, we, uh, in fact, they didn't even start talking until we had... Uh, done a little carpet bombing with uh, B-52s, but, you know, I, I totally agree that uh, this it was a political war, and it was a, a non-win. You know, we, we, we picked up this uh, incorrect verbiage, as far as I'm concerned, during Korea. It's not a war, it's a policing action, and we can call Vietnam a war, but it wasn't, you know, just like you said, you go to war to win, not to not to hold your ground, you go to win and make sure that the uh, opposing side doesn't take any ground. And that's that's what every general in the world is there to take the take the ground and hold it. Correct? That's correct. And talking about Korea, that was called a police action. Uh, but that police action, on average, and I hate statistics, but on average, we lost uh, over 13,000 men per year in Korea. In Vietnam, if you divide the casualties by 10, 10 years of war, we lost about 5,800 per year. And like I say, I hate statistics, but Korea was one hell of a war, and that's where we got into our limited war psychology because of nuclear weapons. We didn't want to spread that war. Uh, we were asked by the French during the Korean War if they would, if we would help them at Den Ben Phu. They mm -hmm. didn't want to lose their uh, colonies in, in Southeast Asia. And at one time, it was discussed uh, if we were going to use the A bomb to help uh, uh, save France. And and thank God they didn't do that. Now in uh, in our war. Uh, in Vietnam, the American War in Vietnam, we had that thing won twice. Uh, 
uh, after Tet, we had devastated. I mean, we were caught off guard for about two or three days, but then we roared out of the base camps, got our act together, and we decimated the VC. I mean, we basically wiped them out. They made the mistake of taking their protracted warfare to open uh, ground warfare, okay, to, to out in the open, and they didn't stand a chance. North Vietnamese were so decimated that they couldn't really launch major campaigns for, for a year or more. Had we uh, done a hook movement through around the DMZ through Laos or maybe a, some kind of amphibious operation in southern North Vietnam, uh, they would probably negotiate a peace or call it a ceasefire. Uh, but we didn't do that. We, we kicked their butt and then we were told to stop. Uh, you don't win a war that way. No. Uh, the golden opportunity was lost. And the second one was uh, the bombing, as you mentioned, of uh, North Vietnam. We started uh, carpet bombing around Haiphong Harbor and also Hanoi. And as the bombs got closer and closer, North of the Vietnamese decided they wanted to talk. Little did we know then that uh, two days uh, after we started carpet bombing, they would have surrendered. They would have called it quits because they had run out of surface-to-air missiles. They could no longer reach our B-52s. We basically would have had a negotiated peace had the carpet bombing continued for about two more days. It did not. The North Vietnamese were smart enough to say, okay, hey, let's, let's go back to Paris and talk a little bit, okay? Um, but like I say, we were fighting a limited war, and the term itself will tell you right then there that you are not committed to winning the war. Uh, we have fought two limited wars, and probably the same thing against terrorism here, but in Vietnam and Korea, we were limited. Our enemies were not. Uh, that's, that's a horrible waste of human life. Well... We have, or I have this thing with the station that uh, I promote the fact that we should not have anyone in Congress and preferably no one in the White House that hasn't served in the military. And I think one of the silliest things is called rules of engagement made, made by people like Feinstein back in the time and Pelosi and other people that have never been shot at, never worn the boots, never worn the uniform, have no idea what it's like to be in combat. And uh, rules of engagement and rules of war, you know, that's why we have the best and most wonderful military in the world, supported by the best brain, military brains in the world. And when you tie their hands behind their back, then you're not to... You know, and somebody... I'm sorry, but uh, uh, our Secretary of Defense, McNamara, was, in my opinion, a joke. He should have stayed on Wall Street. Uh, what the hell did he... What the hell did he know about running a war? Okay, I, I can tell you this about the... Uh, military people serving in politics. Uh, I don't care if a Democrat or a Republican, if you've been in the military, it makes you a better politician. The greatest generation came back from that war, and when uh, a World War II veteran ran for president, it didn't matter then if he was Republican or Democrat. The World War II veterans, you could at least look upon and say, well, I, I disagree with that Republican president or I disagree with that Democratic president, but we all knew that the first pro they were Americans first, and you could trust them to make the right decisions to protect and defend the American citizens. That all changed in the last few years, uh, and I think you're right. It changed with... Uh, people in the White House who haven't served and they don't understand the military. Some of them detest the military. Um, it, it is a shame, but uh, you know, only what, 0.5% of our population now 
serves in the military. Yeah, I think we got it's some good military, but uh, I tell you one thing: they do need to be uh, top priority when it comes to jobs and health care coming home and things like that. Um, you know, we have a movement on now to abolish the police department. Yeah. That'll be a lot of fun, okay? That's the craziest. I heard uh, a city councilman from San Francisco, I believe, he was on national television, and said he wanted to abolish the military. Hmm. His reasoning behind that, well, if we abolish the military, we won't have to fight any wars. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with that kind of mentality. Do you? <laughs> no, I must say, well, no, first, let me, I believe the, the number is 1% as far as uh, how many serve in the military, and I don't want to slight anybody by any stretch, but and that, to me, is deplorable. I personally think that Israel has the, the right attitude. Everybody serves. Everybody gets to have their fun in the military. And, um, you know, as I said from the get-go, I did not go in-country. I, I stayed in, in the USA, but I took the same oath that everybody else did. And if they had called, as we've seen now in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, we go just like everybody else goes, and if you're called, you're called, and you do what you're you're ordered to do. Uh, as far as the president goes, particularly uh, the previous president, he still doesn't have a clue. Now, whoever was calling for the dis- disbanding of the army, you're right they they're not even in this world. Uh, yeah, let, let's let's do away with the military and see how long it takes China to start landing uh, people on uh, the the California shores. You know. Well, that brings us up, up to the uh, Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. Um, if we didn't have a military, yeah, we would be vulnerable big time. But uh, General uh, Admiral. Uh, uh, the Jap- yeah, the Japanese. Yeah, World War II <laughs> said, he was asked, oh, after you bomb Pearl Harbor, you're going to invade America. He said, I have no intention of invading America. There'll be a, a gun behind every blade of grass. Yeah, that's right. So this uh, move to disarm law-abiding citizens, this move to abolish the police department, it goes way, way beyond just general politics. There, There's a big movement about um, you can see our free speech being uh, attacked every day. They took Gone with the Wind off television. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some other cop movies and everything else. Uh, political correctness, by the way, there's no such thing as political correctness. It's political control. Yep. And for you to be silenced, for me to be silenced, or even for, uh, um, I don't know, a liberal or a peaceful protester to be silenced, that's not what this country is about. Um, we wouldn't even have any problems in this country so far as racial or religious divides if we would just go by the, the, the initial declaration. That is, all men are created equal with certain enable rights, the right to, to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, no person should be uh, unemployed if they are qualified. It shouldn't be based on color, race, or creed. It should be based on qualifications. And I can tell you one thing in Vietnam, we didn't care what color your skin was when the enemy started coming across the barbed wire. You just hope and pray that the guy next to you is well-trained, that he will do his job, and if necessary, he will lay down his life for you, and you lay your, lay your life down for him. Uh, war is a great unifier. Uh, if you want to put skin color on people, you can call them brown, yellow, red, black, or white. But I tell you one thing, David: uh, in Vietnam, we all bled the same color blood. Yep, and wore the same color uniform. As far as we, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, in Vietnam, we wore a uniform. The right. enemy usually did not. Right. For the North Vietnamese, they had uniforms. The the Viet Cong were hard, very hard to uh, catch and decipher because. You know, they're farmers one day and, and wearing raggedy clothes one day, pajamas the next type thing. Yeah. And they just melted into to the... Um, if you think about it, if you had a bunch of Chinese troops that came over here and sort of took over America, we could very 
easily identify them. Sure. But if we had an insurgency movement in America, uh, you would have people in the Ozarks and, and, and the Appalachian Mountains and the Rockies and people down in the swamplands of Everglades. We all speak different dialects. Um, to the Chinese, uh, uh, skin color might matter a little bit, but we would all look the same to them. And, you know, the uh, countryside would be on our side. And they would have a tough time. It, it, you know, uh, that's the way it is. You invade or try to take over another country, there's a language barrier, culture barrier, and it is very, very hard to uh, maybe not defeat a country, but to stay there with a prolonged war in progress. Of course, this did not apply to Japan and Germany in World War II, but like Vietnam or Korea, if you stay there for a long time in enemy-controlled not enemy controlled territory, but in the territory where the enemy is very, very active and uh, almost invisible. You got your hands full, my friend. Yeah. Pete, let's uh, let's let people think about that, and uh, we'll come back right after a couple of words from our sponsors and our listeners as well. Thanks. We'll be right back. Okay. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. By the way, I want to mention as far as docs for patient care goes, I was just in a situation recently with a family member in uh, three weeks in intensive care, and I realized the absolute need of docs for patient care. Please check them out on our website. Listen to some of their programs. They do a a show every Thursday morning at 8 a.m., and... There is such a need for what they're doing. Please, please take a look at them. And if you can afford anything, donate to them. We'll be back right after this word. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio and uh, the show that we support, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And we've got... Pete Mecca on. He was an Air Force intelligence uh, veteran of Vietnam. And Pete, there's always, and this leads into your book, by the way, but th- there's always one question I ask our guests. Have you ever met one veteran that will tell you one story? No, and it's very interesting. I have uh, interviewed Medal of Honor recipients, uh, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, great fighter jet pilots uh, and for, you know war can be a lot of blood and gore and for some reason veterans when they start talking they will talk about the wars and, and their, their purple hearts or whatever but they, they turn to the humor of war mm-hmm. uh, they start telling funny stories and we laugh together you see in Vietnam humor was one of the the surviving twos there. You, you had to laugh or you just cried too much uh, about losing friends for almost nothing. But uh, veterans love to talk about the humor situation. Hey, can I, a can, bunch in the military to, to hide the pain, if you know what I mean. Yeah, can I add something to that? The, the death of your best friend or whatever, and the brutality. We, we had never seen anything like that uh, as far as in war and really... I don't think ever taught anything like that of how brutal one man can be to the next. And uh, 
I've had many, many friends that have uh, told me about some of the things that uh, they saw and experienced. And, uh, you know, we probably uh, we didn't know what we were calling it then, but probably more veterans came back with PTSD than ever. And, you know, because of what they saw. And it couldn't help but warp the minds of some of the people that it affected, you know. Well, you're right about that. The war changes a person. Uh, Even in peacetime, if you go into the military, when you get out, you're a changed person. Uh, They say that uh, you go in a boy and come out a man or go in as a girl and come out as a woman. That's true. But if you go to war, you're going to be changed forever. And you can put up a good front and say it didn't affect me at all. Uh, I did that myself, but it did. Um... My losses of friends was different than, say, the military uh, uh, arm of the Army or the Marines. Uh, They saw their friends die in front of them. They they, they held their buddies in their arms as they passed from this life to another. In my situation, it was different. Uh, I had guys I played basketball with at the base gym or... uh, played a game of poker with or whatever and you clock their mission you talk to them you laugh and cut up and everything else and have one too many beer together and they take off the next day and they just don't come back All right. it's like they disappeared um, I did a story on one MIA they uh, haven't found him yet uh, that was a, a captain that I knew and played basketball with he took off and he just never came back. They don't even know what happened to his airplanes. They know that it probably exploded in the midair. They don't know if it was hit by enemy fire. They don't know if it was an engine malfunction and, and the plane just disintegrated. But they just disappeared. They don't come back. That's uh, heartbreaking for us, but yet you can think about the families, too. There's no closure for them. Uh, they're like an MIA for the rest of their lives. They, they have... Uh, and one thing also, I want to bring this up, too, about the missing action in Vietnam. Uh, time is running out for us to recover our missing uh, in action guys over there because the acidity of the Asian soil uh, has started to disintegrate the bones. Mm. And that's about all that we're finding these days. So within, I don't know, David, maybe a year or two, we won't be able to find remains and they will be missing for the rest of their lives. Hmm. Well, you know, this is something that um, we started in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm when, when uh, literally the uh, the first AR and NG units were called up and uh, went on active duty, and we brought out the fact, and 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 this holds true in any war. the The one thing about it is that if um, you're stationed at a at a fort or a post or a base or whatever. You happen to whatever service branch you're in. It is a family, and uh, if one if one is being uh, generally speaking, if one is going, they're all going. And then you have the family, the wives, the spouses that are left behind that sort of take care of each other. But if you're in the in the guard or reserve and you're called up. Your wife or your spouse doesn't have that option. Uh, they they don't have a military family around them. And uh, we ask everybody, if, if your neighbor is called up and you know they're in the Guard or the Reserves, Army Reserves, or whatever it might be, it could be uh, the Air Force Reserves or whatever, take care of that spouse, take care of the person that's left behind. Because a war is fought, in my opinion, again, a war is fought by the people that are in country or supporting those in country or whatever and away from home. But the reality of it is a war is fought by families. In one shape, form, or fashion, it affects the whole family for that one member to be gone no matter where, they've, where they're gone, whether it's uh, in country or, or to a base even in the United States, they're gone, and the family unit has been broken. 
and the members left behind need your support as well. Well, I agree with that. Uh, I do want to ask you a question, see if you can hit this on the nail. Percentage-wise, during World War II, this is percentage-wise, the highest casualty rate was among the United States Marine Corps. The second highest casualty rate was which branch? Um, you know, I really don't know. The Merchant Marines. Oh, okay. You, you know, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, David, this is what I'm getting to. Mm-hmm. We have five branches of the military, the, the Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and the Coast Guard. We just uh, uh, initiated a new branch called the Space Force, I believe, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. So that makes six. But there's actually, in my opinion, and I think a lot of veterans will agree with me, that will make eight service branches. The other two are the Merchant Marines and the Home Front. And that's exactly what you were talking about. I think it's uh, more people realizing that when a soldier, male or female, goes overseas, goes in country or goes on deployment, uh, the ones left behind, they have to wake up every day and wonder if they're going to get a knock on the door of two officers uh, delivering the bad news. Right. Uh, that happened a lot in the, well, it happened a lot in all wars. Uh, World War II, uh, they basically just got a telegram, which is a sad way to handle things. And that also uh, began, uh, uh, started in uh, Vietnam. Uh, the families just got telegrams. They, they finally put a stop to that and sent out military representations with a chaplain to talk to the families. Uh, I know one Marine, uh, Ted Britt that lost his life at Quezon. Uh, what a story that was. I, I was sitting there with his mother and his younger brother who became a Brigadier General in the Army. And I was talking to them and she said, my husband answered the door one morning and I heard a whale from him that I had never heard in my life. And although I was upstairs, I knew that my son was dead, mm. and there were two Marines at the door uh, to relay the news that their son had been lost in combat. He was missing action first, but they found him two days later. Uh, saved a lot of Marines, was a hero and everything else, but uh, uh, yeah, it's tough. That was one of the toughest interviews I, I conducted. I mean, the mother was just, even after all these years, uh, her son, the Brigadier General, had to interrupt and take over the conversation because she could not uh, continue with the conversation. Um, losing one in combat is devastating. Uh, even if there is closure with the body coming home, it's devastating to a family. And in World War II, people really sort of understood and supported. Vietnam was a little different, especially at the last when people would show up to protest against the war at, at a military funeral, which I, is so disgraceful, you can't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that continues today. Um, there is an element in our society that still grossly disrespects the United States military. I saw one lady holding a sign up out there in California that said, uh, every member of the military is a murderer. Uh, that kind of support can cripple morale, but we have a very, very well-educated military now, and they know and they have been trained to understand that there are certain people that we are just not going to change their attitude and and their devotion to country. Um, you know, I, I, I got to throw in one. I got to throw in one thing here that. Um, I had, back in 1964-65, I had a very, as, as I was joining, I had a very bad attitude towards the conscientious objectors. And yet, as it has turned out, as history has proven, many, many of those guys were phenomenal heroes. Uh, uh, they were made into medics. They didn't carry weapons, but they carried that red cross bag and many of them 
were were heroes in Vietnam. And in my opinion, of many of the uh, conscientious objectors changed considerably. Not the ones that ran, or not anybody that ran to Canada, hello, Bill, uh, or ran to England or any place else. Uh, but anybody that served under any circumstance in Nam or any in peaceful times as well, anybody that serves is a hero. And uh, they should never be met at the airport as we were in protest and spit at or yelled at or flipped off or whatever. And it, we, we lived in, in the 70s. It was a very disgraceful time, 69, 70, and 71. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, when I came home, people didn't even look at me at the airport. Um, I tell you what, I came home uh, two or three times uh, while I was over in, in the in the war because I was there so long, and, and after a while, they they let you go home uh, for a week or two, or in one case, a month, and then I had to go back. But uh, one interesting story. I, I'm getting off track here. The last time I came home, my entire clan in Memphis, Tennessee, was going to meet me there, and it was going to be a great celebration. Probably about 30 people from the family. And I got off the airplane. The only one there was my father and husband and all that kind of stuff. I'm saying, where's everybody else? Everybody else in the family had heard that one concourse down, Elvis Presley had arrived. He, he had landed, and they went down there to see Elvis. I never bought another record from Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, um, you know, one thing you brought up, too, everybody should serve. Not everyone, even conscious objectors, too. They, they go in, they serve as medics, and a lot of them lose their life trying to save other people. But today's military is so sophisticated that, Something like, I don't know, 60 or 70% of the high school graduates can't pass the test to get in. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I do know that after high school, if a young person does not go to college or some kind of technical training or some kind of professional training like, you know, uh, welding or something like that, if they are drifting out there... uh, the military is a great, great place for them to go, or in some capacity, they should serve uh, others for about two years. I don't care if it's the Peace Corps or something else, but especially the military, there's a lot of young men that would end up in jail if they went in the military for a couple of years. You, you learn how to say yes, sir, and no, sir. You learn how to follow instructions, and you learn how to give instructions. You learn leadership. And without that self-confidence and self-respect, a lot of these young people are going to join other groups to influence them. That, that may include a gang member or something like that. Um, I think we have failed our younger generation in education and also in what they have available and opportunities uh, out of high school. If they can't find jobs or something, we have to open up different avenues for these young people because that's one reason the military uh, takes people to young age, uh, like 18, 19, maybe 21 years old when they get out of college. At that age, they can still mold your character. They can still turn you into uh, what you need to be in order to survive in the military or in combat. You are trainable. Uh, David, when you get our age and they say, look, go take that machine gun nest, you and I are going to say, hey, go to hell. You go take it, okay? Uh, It's different as you get older. You start maturing and you have more profound beliefs and things like that. Uh, Although I would still serve if I had to. I'm not capable of doing so, but I would if need be. But uh, that's what happens. These young people need some kind of guidance. And they're not getting from our country right now. You know, we uh, there's not a soul that I've interviewed, I don't think. And uh, proof positive of that is General Dix, uh, Richard Dix. Uh, he was retired. I don't know if you know Richard or not, but uh, he was retired uh, general. And uh, he uh, 
was called up for the pandemic because of his ability in the Army to uh, his logistics ability to make sure if something needed to be over there and it was over here, he got it over there. And uh, that's what he was doing with ventilators and with uh, with masks, as a matter of fact. And, uh, yeah. you know, he's uh, he will be back joining us again very soon. But, uh, you know, the military, like you said, and we promote this, whether you're a teen, you know, graduating from high school, graduating from college, your grandparents, your mother, your father, whoever's listening, have them take a look at the military. I know I've got one of my sons that's uh, in the in Air Force Intelligence, loves it. And uh, and by the way, uh, another thing that a lot of folks don't realize is that. It's a very good-paying job now. It's not like it used to be, where you were lucky to get uniforms and a meal. But now it's a, it's a very you stay in, you can retire, you've got incredible benefits, and uh, like my son has done, he and his wife, uh, they have literally seen the world because of the places he's been stationed, and it's uh, just it's a it's a great job, and. Uh, if I oh the other thing I was going to say I don't know of a soul that we've had in here that I, like myself except I'm like you are Pete I'm too old to to carry the pea shooter much less anything else but um, you know if the need were to arise and they said everybody that's had any kind of military we experience we need you there's not a soul that I've interviewed that wouldn't raise their hands and be the first to go. If yeah, let us, I think David about seventy percent of Vietnam veterans said that they would do it again. Yeah, uh, that, that's shocking, really. Uh, I would, even knowing what I do now, maybe I could go back and save a couple more lives, type thing in my plotting or my targeting or whatever. Um, you're absolutely right, sir. I, I agree with you there. Well, let's talk about. Uh, you wrote a book, and uh, a friend of ours, uh, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, Mr. Deeds Publishing, by the name of Bob Babcock, uh, is the one that published it. And uh, tell us about the book and what inspired you to uh, to write it. And like I said, uh, I've never met a veteran that only had one story. Oh, absolutely. I started uh, writing a newspaper column about, oh, geez, about 13, 14 years ago called A Veteran Story. Um, the newspapers tried to restrict me to 500 words. <laughs> I told them I couldn't get a guy out of boot camp with 500 words. And it has developed into I get a full page in the papers. Uh, my wordage is unlimited. Uh, I'd like to say, oh, I'm just because I'm a great writer. I think I'm a good writer, but the people who read these stories love the content. They love reading about the veterans. They love the stories about the veterans. There's really very little political content in my uh, stories. Uh, it's just about the veteran himself or herself. Uh, I have been honored to, to interview now over 400 brothers and sisters from all wars, all ranks, and all branches. Um, it's a very, very popular article. Uh, some teachers have used it to uh, teach their classes. Uh, I've spoken to uh, schools before. Uh, I love these kids. They, they are very attentive. They are hungry for this knowledge. It's not taught in our schools. They, you'll be surprised if they even know who won the Civil War. Oh, our books today, public schools and our history books, are deplorable and, and a shame. We should all be ashamed of them. Oh, I, I, I agree there. But from the newspaper article, of course, uh, when I started it, and it took off like a rocket ship, even my editors were saying, well, you're going to have a book one day. And they're right. I, I just took a collection in my first book, about 36 or 37 of uh, veterans that I've interviewed, including my father, uh, who served in World War II. And um, that was the first book. Uh, I have scheduled maybe... 10 or 12 more uh, books on veterans if I should live long enough and if I can keep writing these stories. I do have one uh, other book uh, that I have uh, my printer looking at 
and it's probably going to be out pretty soon. It's a little bit different, but it's about female warriors, past and present. I, and I, I bet, I bet you know, a, I bet you know a lady named Donna Rowe. Donna Rowe, that does not ring a bell, sir. Captain Rowe, she was a uh, nurse, a triage nurse uh, in in Nam, as a matter of fact. And uh, she, uh, yeah, I have met several uh, nurses from Vietnam. She's and I put a, them in, in, in the book too. She's uh, uh, she's in the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. Well, then I should know her, and I don't. So that's that's my bad. <laughs> but uh, uh, where were we? I'm sorry. You were just talking about the different uh, folks that you've met, uh, you know, in writing your books and their stories and so forth. Uh, and I didn't oh. mean to, I, I just, when you mentioned, oh, that you were going to write a, a book about women, and uh, one other thing that uh, maybe you'd entertain writing a book about, and I think the heroes of the heroes in Vietnam, in my opinion, were the dust-off pilots. Oh, I agree. Uh, dust-off pilots, I've interviewed several of them, especially the uh, Lam San uh, raid uh, that turned into a disaster. We lost about 300 choppers. Um, there, there are so many unsung heroes in Vietnam. We, we hear about Medal of Honors, or we hear about certain heroics, uh, and they, they gain the attention of the uh, media. Uh, there are so many guys that I'm saying, man, this guy deserved a, a Medal of Honor, or at least a, a, the Navy or Air Force Cross or something like that. They didn't get them. Uh, I can tell you right now, there are guys who didn't get the Purple Heart that they deserved. They were wounded, they got patched up by a medic, and they went right back into combat. You know, they, they didn't get a shrapnel wound and say, ooh, I'm taking to the hospital, oh, patch uh, me up, let me get back with my buddies. Well, Carrie, yeah, Carrie yeah. has an extra one. <laughs> yeah. I, I interviewed, by the way, we were talking about age. I interviewed uh, Patricia Justice. Uh, they call her called her Mama Bear. She tried to go into the military. She was a registered nurse, tried to go into the military when she was about, I don't know, 29 or 30. And they told her she was too old or something like that. <laughs> but after 9-11, she said, well, I think I'll try again. By 9-11, she was 40 years old. And after 9-11, they said, yeah, we'll take you. So she went in, not as a second lieutenant, but as a first lieutenant, a uh, registered nurse. And uh, she was wounded in Afghanistan during a... Uh, terrorist attack, a fuel truck exploded, almost blew her apart, but she, she lost some hearing, but she's okay, but even at that, Mama Bear stayed in the military, and she is now a, a lieutenant colonel. Wow. So, age, I don't know, there may be a certain age, like, like when you get our age and everything, you don't need to be toting a weapon because you're a hindrance to the platoon or to the flight or to the squad, but... Um, you get per, a person around 40 and 50 still in good shape and has a special and everything, I, I cannot see why the military shouldn't accept them. I can't either. And they bring they bring something that uh, the 20, 25, 30, 35-year-old doesn't have. And uh, Well, I agree there, too, Dave. And there's another thing, too, that the military has... They changed a little bit. You know, you lose a, a arm or leg now, and sometimes you can stay in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were guys in Vietnam. I know one especially, uh, Tommy Clack. Great, great guy. Uh, Tommy lost both legs and his right arm and shoulder in Vietnam. Uh, he could have stayed in. After he recovered, that man could have stayed in because he outworks 10 other men. He's a phenomenal individual. And, no, he probably couldn't go back in combat, of course, but although he says he could, he said he could still pull a trigger on a sniper rifle. <laughs> but, you know, Tommy could have been very useful to the military with all his experience and his work ethics and everything else. He would have been sidelined stateside in some kind of a desk job, but he could have done it. Uh, you know, that's one reason the women uh, joined the workforce during World War II, to release the, the men who were able to pick up a rifle and go into combat. Uh, there are a lot of wounded warriors that come home who should not have to get out of the military. They can still serve in some capacity. It takes about, what now, $100,000, $150,000 to uh, train an individual in the military now? Why waste the money 
because they lost an eye or maybe one leg. They could still be useful and, and serve in the military with honor. Certainly, uh, as instructors as well, and they could give you some inside information that a lot of the instructors, uh, when I, in fact, when I was in, uh, <laughs> that's all they were were instructors. They had never, they never put a boot in country, you know, and uh, yeah, yet they were telling us, like, you know, they were telling yeah. us about what we should and shouldn't do, and yet they had never. Uh, Never done it themselves, but you know, I find that I have a lot of questions and uh, a few answers, but nobody ever asked me for either one. <laughs> I, I understand. There is not one veteran, uh, regardless of age or, or branch, that has not told me that we should, uh, that every young person should serve in the military. Uh, there is a lot of debate, of course, about the draft and things like that. But I have not ever interviewed a veteran, even veterans who got out because they disliked certain things about the military. None of them have ever told me that they would not recommend a person go into the military. Right. So that's what we're talking about, the military forming uh, character, self-discipline, self-confidence, and self-respect. And those three ingredients will, will make a great individual. But you're not going to get them in college right now. You're not going to get them in the workforce right now. Uh, I would say that the military is about the best place to go to form a young person's character for the future. I think you'll agree with me on that. Oh, absolutely. And one other thing I want to and try to mention, or two, two things, actually. One is that the military, you and I can talk on a level that someone that's never served can't. And uh, that's the military is the biggest fraternity and sorority in the world. And if you, no matter what branch you were in, uh, you may kid about a jarhead, a, a marine, or whatever you want to call them, a leatherneck, but you can talk to them if you served. By the same token, any time that whoever it is that's listening uh, walks into an airport or any place, uh, and you see someone that's wearing a uniform or you can tell they're military and they're having a drink or buying dinner or whatever, why don't you do it for them? And the same way with our first responders. Uh, I was amazed the other day. I, I, there was a cop in the uh, in the grocery store that I, I go to, and uh, I just went up and, and said, thank you for our service or your service, particularly after all of this stuff that's been going on, and you'd have thought I'd given him a fresh new $1,000 bill. I couldn't believe it, his response, you know, that that somebody would come up and thank him instead of coming up and saying, you know, you all are just a bunch of pigs or what, and, I, and, and yet I don't want to disband the military. I don't want to disband the police. I personally like being able to call 911 or call USA and say, you know, the the rebels have landed. What are we going to do about it? But anyway, uh, just appreciate any and everybody that's in uniform, no matter what uniform that is. It is. Uh, and as veterans, we can get together and laugh and cry and rib each other. Inter-service robbery is great. Uh, sometimes it's led to confrontations, but uh, when the bullets start going off and the bombs start dropping and, and the mortars come in, uh, you're on the same team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you got time for a one-minute joke here. Sure. One of the best things you ever heard. Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, I, had a, I was told this by a pastor <laughs> who was also a Marine. He, he said the Army and a Navy and Air Force guy got in a fight in the bar and they killed each other. Well, they went to heaven, tried to get it through the pearly gates. St. Peter said, well, I can't let you, and that's horrible. You killed each other in a bar fight. But he said, you have been good patriots, you've been good warriors, you've been uh, faithful fathers and husbands. I'll let you in temporarily until I hear from God that you can stay. So they stayed there for a while, and they saw St. Peter one day. They ran over and said, have you heard from God? He said, no, not yet. Well, about that time, a pigeon or a dove lands on St. Peter's shoulder with a little scroll in his beak, and St. Peter said, ah, there's your answer right there. 
so he unscrolled it and, and said, yep, it's from God. And it said, uh, the fact that you had killed each other in a bar, Army, Navy, and Air Force, you should be ashamed of yourselves, but you have been good husbands and fathers and, and dedicated to your country. And he said, I have decided to let you in to heaven on a permanent basis. Sign God. Gunnish Sergeant, United States Marine Corps, retired. <laughs> With that, we're going to have to put the plug in the jug and get out of here. We're a little over, but we want to thank everybody for listening. And, uh, Pete, thank you for your service. And uh, I ask one more time, will you come back and be on again? I will. If people would uh, go to my website, I think you have the information, veteransarticle.com. Uh, they can read some stories plus get my book and I would greatly appreciate it. You got it. Take care and uh, you're listening to America's Web Radio. We'll be back with more after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.